What will come of me after the fern has feathered from my brain and the rose tree out of my blood? What will come of me in the end under the rainy locust blossom, shaking its honey out on springtime air, under the wind, under the stooping sky? What will come of me and shall I lie voiceless forever in earth and unremembered and be forever the cold green blood of flowers and speak forever with the tongue of grass, unsyllabled, and sound no louder than the slow falling downward of white water, and only speak the quickened sand grain stirring, only the whisper of the leaf unfolding, only the tongue of leaves forever and ever. Out of my heart the bloodroot, out of my tongue the rose, out of my bone the jointed corn, out of my fiber trees, out of my mouth a sunflower, and from my fingers vines, and the rank dandelion shall laugh from my loins, over million seeded earth, but out of my heart, core of my heart, blood of my heart, the blood root, coming to lift a petal in peril of snow, coming to dribble from a broken stem, bitterly, the bright color of blood forever. But I would be more than a cold voice of flowers and more than water, more than sprouting earth under the quiet passion of the spring. I would leave you the trouble of my heart to trouble you at evening. I would perplex you with lightning coming and going about my head, outrageous signs and wonders. I would leave you the shape of my body filled with images, the shape of my mind filled with imaginations, the shape of myself. I would create myself in a little fume of words and leave my words after my death to kiss you forever and ever. Yet One More Spring by Joy Davidman Patty Callahan, and this is Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis, an in-depth exploration into the improbable love story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis. You'll hear the stories behind the stories of the best-selling novel Becoming Mrs. Lewis, along with interviews from some of the foremost experts on their lives and love. Yeah, he had this amazing intelligence that he could almost watch himself grieving. He seemed to be grieving and watching himself grieving. Lewis, in an earlier book called The Personal Heresy, he didn't like the idea that we would study an author and their relationships and their complexes, and, and he really thought you should be reading that author for the sake of the works that they're presenting, for the sake of their verbal skill and their imagination and their intellectual insight. And he said, we should read authors not because we want to look into their minds, but we want to see with their eyes. Episode 3, Losing Faith. Did C.S. Lewis lose his faith after Joy's death? With Dr. David Downing. In this episode, we're going to explore the devastating grief C.S. Lewis experienced when he lost his wife, Joy Davidman, to cancer. She died very young, at 45 years old. And after a seven-year friendship, 
they had only been married for three years. Admittedly, it was the happiest three years of their lives. Grief disassembles us. It shatters us. It moves the ground on which we stand. And C.S. Lewis was no different. He was human, and the grief was intense. He called his wife Joy, stars, water, air, and field, and forest, as they were reflected in a single mind. In his raw and poignant book after Joy's death, A Grief Observed, he seems to both rant against God and doubt his goodness. With us today is Dr. David Downing, who, along with his wife, Dr. Crystal Downing, are the co-directors of the Marion Wade Center in Wheaton, Illinois. With a PhD from UCLA, Dr. Downing has written four scholarly books on C.S. Lewis, many articles and essays, and a fiction novel titled Looking for the King, which is a historical novel in which two young Americans meet Lewis and Tolkien in Oxford in 1940. He well understands the impetus to tell the truth through fiction. Along with this impressive cachet of work, Dr. Downing has written an illuminating essay titled A Grief Obscured about the themes in Lewis's book A Grief Observed. Every time I talk to David and Crystal, I walk away with a newfound understanding about life, faith, and love. So I'm honored to have Dr. Downing with us today. Let's dive right in with the question I ask everyone. How did you first hear about Joy Davidman? I first found out about Joy by reading one of the early biographies by Walter Hooper. After I'd read uh, most of Lewis's fiction, I decided I wanted to know about, more about his personal life. So in one of the biographies, Walter Hooper talks about their late romance and the tragedy that followed it. A tragedy. Yep. The opening line to Grief Observed is, no one has ever told me that grief felt so like fear. So here we have the most popular Christian apologist of his day, undeniably the most popular voice on radio, other than Churchill, during World War II for his talks that became the book Mere Christianity. And yet his logical portrayal of pain in his book The Problem of Pain fell apart under the intense emotions of losing joy. Although he had lost loved ones before, his mother when he was only nine years old, this was different. He suffered, just as we all do, without the intellectual gymnastics that kept him from pain. His raw grief is evident in A Grief Observed. C.S. Lewis wrote A Grief Observed under the pseudonym N.W. Clerk while he was teaching at Cambridge. He passed away three years later, and it was published under his real name, C.S. Lewis. If we're going to address the possibility that he lost his faith after Joy's death, then let's talk about how he returned after losing his faith when his mother died. So, Dr. Downing, tell us a bit about the scene you reimagined in your book, The Most Reluctant Convert. Well, he had a very happy childhood in Northern Ireland until the death of his mother when he was nine, and that was completely changed his life. His father sent him off to an English boarding school within two weeks of his mother's passing. So it was very traumatic. He, he always said the, the great continent had sunk like Atlantis. And so there's an interesting book called Mother Loss about the results of losing a mother on a child. And one is to lose confidence in a benevolent God, because how could a good God take away your beloved mother? When he went off to boarding school, he lost his faith probably at about 13 or 14. He had something of a nominal faith growing up in the north of Ireland. And he pretty much looked at all the alternative worldviews to Christianity, 
For a while, he was interested in spiritualism and occultism, and he read about seances and seeing over to the other side. He really saw through that. He felt that it was an attempt to make spirituality scientific, but he thought it was a failed attempt. And it also had to do with simply preserving your life after life. It didn't have to do with knowing God. For all of his life, he had this tremendous longing for heaven or for God or an inconsolable longing for this lost paradise, which ironically he called joy. Surprised by joy is taken from a Wordsworth poem, but it has to do with this feeling of longing for a lost paradise, which is both pleasurable and painful. And he was always seeking it maybe in romantic love, maybe in spiritualism, maybe in literary romanticism, maybe in nature and the beauty of nature. So he literally tried scientism, materialism, spiritualism. He got into philosophical idealism, and he found them all to be wanting. There was something missing about the longing for this lost paradise, which turned out to be more of a person than a garden. And so finally, in his late 20s, when he met Tolkien and Dyson and other Christians, he felt that these are the kind of people that I could really learn from in my spiritual journey. There's another good book called Conversion by Lewis Rambo that said loss of faith is often a matter of disaffiliation. You just don't identify with the faith community you're in. And that happened to Lewis in the north of Ireland. It was very politicized. But coming to faith is a matter of affiliation. When you really emotionally connect with people, you're much more open to their ideas and their faith and their convictions. So he had a long night talk till like three in the morning with Tolkien and Dyson, who were both Christians. And he said, oh, the anthropologist James Frazier, he's proven that the dying God myth isn't unique to Christianity. There's Egyptian mythology and Norse mythology, and every culture has its dying God myth. And Tolkien said, he didn't say this literally, but he should have said, au contraire. He said, actually, all these myths do is prove that every culture has a longing for redemption from above. People are aware that they can't fix themselves. It's almost like an intuition of original sin. And they said, but all the other myths, nobody says that it happened in history. Everyone understands that it's happened sometime out of time. But the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ happened in history. We can date it exactly according to the Caesars and the rulers of Israel. And so they said, myth became fact, this great myth which you are so attracted to in Norse mythology, Egyptian mythology. It actually happened in history. And that's why that really redeems all these myths and shows that they're very important spiritual intuitions of reality. So Lewis digested that for just a few days, and then he wrote that he was in his brother's motorcycle in the sidecar, and they were taking a ride out to Whipsnade Zoo, which is actually more of a park than a zoo. It's one of the early zoos which really let the animals have a lot of room in nature. And he reveled in nature so much. I think the ride there and the excitement about going to this beautiful area, I think it really energized him spiritually, and he ruminated about what his friends Tolkien and Dyson had said. And for him, that was the tipping point. He was already attracted to Milton and Chesterton and other Christian authors, and he always said, it's so strange that the authors I enjoy the most have this quirk of believing in this improbable theory, and all the authors I enjoy the least are skeptics. So once again, his intuitions, he kept thinking, why is it that they're all so wonderful and I identify with them except for this odd belief in Christianity? And suddenly he realized maybe that very quirk is what made them so attractive to him. So the combination of Christian authors and Christian friends 
At the end of my book, Most Reluctant Convert, I imagined what was going through his mind. And it was partly his reading. It was partly the fact that his brother had become a Christian again. It was partly the dying God myth now became to him an argument for Christianity rather than against Christianity. And there was also an important surrender of the will. He said that was actually the hardest part. He saw the human personality as concentric circles with the imagination on the outer ring and then the intellect on the middle ring and the will is at the center. And he said, when I started reading George MacDonald as a teenager, he baptized my imagination, meaning the outer ring of his personality began to see a winsomeness and attractiveness and an elegance to the Christian worldview. But not until he got stronger arguments from people like Tolkien did he say, no, wait a minute, this is actually intellectually plausible and compelling. This isn't just a fantasy. But his whole life, he said he didn't like to be interfered with. He liked to be the captain of his soul, a poem which he liked in his youth, but he later despised. He says, none of us are captains of our souls. We have too many obligations. Joy used that almost exact same phraseology in her essay, The Longest Way Round. Yeah, that's interesting. And I believe she also quoted that line from Dante that he quoted about in his will is our peace. Isn't that amazing? The words echoed in so many places. When she died, Lewis wrote, cancer, cancer, cancer. My father, my mother, my wife. I wonder who is next in the queue. And then he states, the time when there is nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be just that time when God can't give it. So that line from Lewis lends credence to the theory that maybe he lost his faith, even for a line there, a minute there. You and I often talk about the two tribes about Joy Davidman, yet there also seem to be two tribes about Lewis and these kind of statements in A Grief Observed. Some who take A Grief Observed as a straight memoir when he calls God the cosmic sadist, and they see proof of faith lost, but others see it differently. It is said that when Walter Hooper, his personal secretary late in life, was reading A Grief Observed, he reached that part and was aghast. And Lewis said, read on, read on. And another critic, as you noted in your essay, wrote that it is crucial to separate the truth of the book from biographical accuracy. What do you think? So I wish I could read that passage for you because actually I wrote it better than I could speak it. But I call it A Grief Obscured because people assume too quickly that that narrator is Lewis speaking in his own voice. Certainly, he's drawing very heavily on his own grief experiences, but he said he wanted to take the reader through a Dantean experience of grief, through the inferno and then purgatory, and finally reaching the paradiso, the paradise of acceptance. A number of his letters give very similar observations to what we find in Grief Observe, which would argue that this is Lewis speaking in his own voice. But in the letters, he never questions God. He always says that part of Christian faith is to find acceptance even amidst uh, heartbrokenness. He recommended the book to people, and he said in the third person, you will find here someone who has all the follies and sins that go with the grieving process. So he was aware that the book contained follies and sins, so it's not meant to be a direct explication of his own views of how to grieve. I honestly think that he wrote two books in his life too quickly. When he became a Christian, he was so excited, he wrote Pilgrim's Regress in two weeks. And I think he could have waited another six months or a year. He spends too much time in that book settling old scores with modernists and Freudians. 
And I think if he'd waited to hear a more positive view of what he was moving into, a Christian faith and worldview would have predominated. I think the same thing happened with Grief Observed. He wrote the whole thing in two months after his joy's passing. And I believe there's a kind of rawness there that wouldn't have shown up even a year later. Grief counselors say the first two months are the worst, and that's the period in which he wrote A Grief Observed. As you know from my article, I follow up with his letters later in his life. She died in 1960, and he died in 1963. But if you go to Letters to Malcolm Chiefly on Prayer, you see a much more mellow view of the grieving process. And he says, my mind was going around in circles, and everyone was on the outside. But now he's speaking in the past tense about the rawness of his sorrow a few years earlier. He also says in a letter to a friend, I was only married a few years late in life, whereas losing your partner of a lifetime must be much more harrowing. I feel as if I've not been given my cake, but others must feel like they've lost their bread. And that kind of emotional statement, he would never say something like that in a grief observed. I think he was too much in that, that raw state of bereavement to make that kind of a comment. His grief is so palpable and real, it hurts. And for those of us who have lost anyone in any way, it rings so true, his pain. Lewis's words are a consolation and seem to come alongside your own pain when he says things like, don't talk to me about the consolations of religion or I shall suspect that you do not understand. But you, David, talk about the process of grief, not the state of grief. When Lewis tells us, you never know how much you really believe anything, until its truth of falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? So when we read something like that, we wonder if maybe for that brief time Lewis lost his faith, How do we not take this as autobiographical? No, that's a good comment, because I think there's, he always had an emotional honesty. Part of the reason he's so appealing as an apologist is he really sympathizes with atheists, and he says, I don't see a benevolent God in nature and in evolution. I have to go through the Bible and my own experience. So the emotional honesty is there. I think the point I was making was, I don't think he really came as close to losing his faith as people may assume if they assume it's autobiographical. But I do, I love his emotional honesty. I was just reading Reflections on the Psalms, and he just says, why are all these Psalms that are so hateful and toward my enemies? And when I was raised, you weren't allowed to criticize Scripture. You'd say, well, the enemies must have really been bad. He calls them the cursing Psalms, and he says, really, God is not saying, oh, you should be like these people. He's saying, this is what happens to people when they are terrorized and humiliated and insulted. So he sees it as a picture of people who've been severely oppressed, but he's not asking the reader to admire them and to think that kind of hatred toward one's neighbors is a good thing. So I think he has the same emotional honesty and grief observed that he has in many of his other books. If we watch Shadowlands, we also get a completely different impression of his grief, as if he wore it like a cloak. Um, So many myths follow Joy and Jack around about their love, their grief, their lives. That's correct. The play gives the wrong impression that he wore his grief on his sleeve and that he actually used the phrase cosmic sadist in talking to a Christian friend very bitterly. The way the play ends, he says, well, you know, God is a cosmic sadist, and he goes stomping out of the room, and then he goes and weeps with uh, his son, who's Douglas Gresham. 
But in real life, people were surprised that he held in his grief so much. He was at a meeting soon after Joy's death in which he was very matter-of-fact and went through the items of business. And then he said, gentlemen, I'll have to excuse myself. My wife just passed away a few nights ago. They were shocked that he could have such composure and just admit that as he was leaving. So the portrayal of him as uh, raging publicly is not accurate. Also, the most uh, harrowing things he said in that book come in the first third of the book. And in the play Shadowlands, they make it sound like that was his final word in his wrestling with God. But that actually was his starting point. He says in the book that grieving is a process, it's not a state. And I think that play tended to treat grieving as a state of bereavement rather than a process of of overcoming this terrible trauma of loss. And by state, you mean that you're stuck in it. And Lewis wrote from a very specific moment in time instead of through the whole process of loss. I love that you wrote that we need to look at a grief observed as a place where he started in his grief, not where he ended. It was almost as if, if we can look at it this way, his grief is a continuum. But in the end, he used a nom de plume, N.W. Clerk. Why do you think he did that? Was he hiding his grief from us, from himself, from his friends, from his colleagues? Well, he said in a letter that he wanted it to be about everyone's grieving process, not just his own grieving process. Some people consider that a clue that he didn't want to admit that the great C.S. Lewis had, was struggling with his faith. But he was an open secret among his friends and acquaintances that he was writing this book. In fact, he sent copies of it to various friends of his. He originally was going to call it Demidius, one who's been cut in half. That was going to be the pen name. And he sent it to Favor and Faber, where T.S. Eliot was an editor. And they were good enough acquaintances that Eliot recognized that this was C.S. Lewis. And he said, if you use this Latin pen name, people will be preoccupied with finding out the real author. So you're actually going to call attention to yourself rather than deflecting from your own personal grieving. So Lewis came up with N.W. Clark, C-L-E-R-K, it looks like N.W. Clerk, which literally was meant unknown scholar. But it looks enough like a real English name that people wouldn't think that it was a pen name. Ironically, it didn't sell well when it was under the name N.W. Clerk or Clark, but after he died, they put C.S. Lewis on there and then immediately started selling very well. So his name is what had the selling power. I want to talk a bit about something we both discovered when I spoke at the Wade Center about Joy's conversion essay, Longest Way Around. Her last line in that essay is, in his will is our peace. And Lewis has told us that her last line on earth to him was, I am at peace with God. And you reminded me about that line, I wish I could read it in Latin, is from Dante and that Lewis himself used it many times, including in Pilgrim's Regress and in a famous letter to Sister Madalena. So talk to us about how you believe Dante informed so much of Lewis's work, but most especially this book about grief. He loved Dante even before he became a Christian. When he was a teenager, he felt that he was missing something in translation, so he taught himself medieval Italian so he could... I read Dante in the original, which Dorothy Sayers also did. Dante comes up in most of his books in one way or another. The whole last third of Paralandra is a Dantean struggle going from underground and climbing up to a mountain and coming out on the top of the holy mountain and seeing this beatific vision. Even before Joy died, he wrote a sonnet cycle in 1950 called Five Sonnets. And it's as if he's foretelling his own future because he has a grieving person who's going through this Dantean process of the inferno of bereavement 
and loneliness, and then a gradual purgation of the soul's residue and eventually finding acceptance and being reconnected with uh, the divine God. So he already had Dante connected with grieving in his mind before he wrote A Grief Observed. As I said earlier, the book records a process, not a state of grieving. And I make an argument that they both knew Dante so well that he plants some key Dantean images of first the Inferno and then the Purgatorio and then the Paradiso in A Grief Observed. And the very last line of A Grief Observed is, and then she turned toward the Eternal Fountain. And that's directly from Dante, meaning that she is his Beatrice, and she's saying, I'm only reflecting the glory of God. Turn with me and look at God, the Eternal Fountain. So it ends very much on that same Dantean note that we mentioned earlier phrases from Dante that were important. Do you want me to talk about the particular images, or is that getting too specific? Yes, yes. Tell us about the four images he gives of the lost beloved, who is joy in a grief observed. We know that he has called her my trusty comrade, friend, shipmate, fellow soldier, my mistress, but at the same time, all that any man friend, and I have had good ones, had ever been to me. We feasted on love, every mode of it, solemn and merry, romantic and realistic, sometimes as dramatic as a thunderstorm, sometimes as comfortable and unemphatic as putting on your soft slippers. That is how he describes his beloved joy. Okay. Well, Lewis was very clever about being candid while also being crafty in that he said one place, if you're writing a poem about your grieving, once again, this is before Joy's passing, you're not only taken up with grieving, but you're also taken up with poetry. The fact that you're trying to shape the emotion into words is in a slightly different place than just sobbing into a pillow. So he thinks the very act of trying to get one's feelings into words is a kind of therapy or a kind of coping with the difficulty. You're reading along in A Grief Observed, and he says, oh, I just loved her conversation. She had such a nimble mind. She was so witty. She was like a leopard. And you think, well, that's strange. I don't think of Joy as being very leopard-like in general. I can see the analogy. But then you go back to the Divine Comedy, and when he's trying to make it to the mount, it's a leopard of fear that keeps him from moving forward and actually chases him into the aperture, which turns out to be the Inferno. So at the very beginning of the book, we have an image from the beginning of the Divine Comedy. Later on, he says... I know that she wasn't perfect. She had her failings, as we all do. And I think there can be a great time of cleansing and purging. And she's like a tarnished sword that needs to be shined up at the, at the whetstone. And once again, you say, well, that's an unusual image. Most of the other imagery is, I would say, more predictable. But the idea of your lost wife as a tarnished sword is unusual. And sure enough, we move into the Purgatorio, where uh, Beatrice explains that This is the place where souls can do some soul work that would prepare them for their encounter with God. So we go from the leopard to the tarnished sword. And then later on, he says, she was an endless maze. She was like a wonderful garden. And of course, when they get to the entrance of the Paradiso, there's a beautiful, fragrant garden with all these infinite aisles to explore and rows to explore. And then finally, at the very end, when she says, I'm at peace with God, he says, she smiled, but not at me, which is also in Dante. And then she turned toward the eternal fountain. And so strategically placed throughout A Grief Observed are these Dantean images. And he told Walter Hooper, his uh, secretary, that you have to go all the way down before you can ascend back up spiritually. And he said specifically, 
yeah, that there's a Dantean rhythm or a Dantean structure to the whole book. So to look at this in the whole, a man who lives like that, and whether that's poetic candidness and grieving, to be able to put your words out like that, shows us that this isn't just a poetic observation of grief, but also an experience with grief. Quite astounding to see how he is almost watching himself grieve, observing himself. Yeah, he had this amazing intelligence that he could almost watch himself grieving. He seemed to be grieving and watching himself grieving. He called it a grief observed. So he's going to be both the griever and the observer of grief, which was going to take a literary manifestation. Can I go back to the way the play presents Lewis? He had an essay called Meditations in a Tool Shed. And he obviously had been in a tool shed, and he'd seen a streak of light coming from between two of the planks. And when he looked at it, all he could see was a slant of sunlight with all these dust motes dancing around. And so he turned a little bit, and he aligned himself with the uh, sunlight coming in between the, the wooden planks. And all of a sudden, he could see outside the grass and the sunshine and the flowers. And he said how different it is to look at something versus to look with something. And... He says, in in all of our life, we need to remember that it's a different experience looking at something rather than looking with it. And what I think happened in plays like Shadowlands, I think that the playwright was sympathetic, but he was looking at Christian faith, and he wasn't looking with Christian faith. And I think you really need to be inside Lewis's consciousness. (laughs) Well, I think it's amazing how often Lewis's own earlier writings help explain or amplify what he was going through in his bereavement period about joy. Well, I want to mention just a factual detail. He says that he's writing A Grief Observed in some old school exercise books. And when Walter Hooper said, oh, I'd love to see the exercise books that you wrote your first draft of A Grief Observed, Lewis laughed and said, oh, you really believed all those details? And he got out some exercise books, but they were full of other material. They had nothing to do with joy or grief observed. So even in the little details, he liked to do imaginative flourishes and excursions And he didn't expect people to take them all literally. So that's just another small bit of evidence that you need to be careful in assuming this is straight journaling about his grief process. I wanted to get back to another Lewis quote, which I think bears upon a grief observed and how it's often misunderstood. Lewis, in an earlier book called The Personal Heresy, he didn't like the idea that we would study an author and their relationships and their complexes. and, And he really thought you should be reading that author for the sake of the works that they're presenting, for the sake of their verbal skill and their imagination and their intellectual insight. And he said, we should read authors not because we want to look into their minds, but we want to see with their eyes. And he said, I don't look as an author as a spectacle. I look as an author as a pair of spectacles through which I can see something else. And I think that's good advice for reading uh, Grief Observed, rather than saying, oh, let's look at the spectacle of Lewis struggling with his faith we should say, well, let's look at this book as a pair of spectacles through which we can all explore the grieving experience in the context of faith. Oh, David, that's a great way to end, to explore the grieving experience in the context of faith. Lewis might not have lost his faith, but he did lose his resolve to write much anymore. Roger Lanceling Green once heard parts of an unfinished book read aloud, a book Lewis started about the Battle of Troy and never finished in August of 1960 after Joy's death. And Green said that after that year, Lewis found that he could no longer make up stories nor go on with this one. Isn't losing a creative urge almost like losing one's faith? 
It sounds like a sign of defeat, of absolute grief. He did pass only three years after Joy. As Madeline Langle wrote in the foreword for Grief Observed, the important thing is that we do not know. It is not in the realm of proof. It is in the realm of love. David, thank you so much for being with me today to shed some light on this brilliant book on grief and a peek into C.S. Lewis's mind and work. Thank you to the Wade Center for recording this. Next episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Crystal Downing, the other co-director of the Wade Center, and Dr. Crystal Hurd about the question that follows me wherever I go. Why joy? Of all the women, why this most improbable and spirited woman from New York? Make sure to subscribe to Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis wherever you get your podcasts. You can find the novel and audiobook wherever books are sold, published by HarperCollins' Thomas Nelson. You've been listening to the Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis podcast, copyright 2019 by Thomas Nelson, based on the book Becoming Mrs. Lewis, The Improbable Love Story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis, copyright 2018 by Thomas Nelson. Poetry selections by Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis, read by Liz Hill and Simon Bubb. No portion of this recording may be used without the express written consent of the publisher. For more information on the people and stories featured in this episode, please visit becomingmrslewispodcast.com. This program was engineered by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at Kingswood Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, and produced by Jolene Bartow and Gabe Wicks.